little self-disclosure here. Diane and I love British television. I don't know about the rest of you. We're about to get BritBox, right? You heard about that, right? We're, we're thinking Christmas because, right, there's only the two of us. So, you know. Mostly murder mysteries. We, we love the murder mysteries, but we also love the British slang, right? The idioms, the words that we have a certain word and they've got a different word, right? Like, like bloody. That's just such a horrible word, but everything bad in English is bloody. Like a, you can have a bloody marriage and you can have a bloody beautiful birth. I mean, I, it, bloody everything is horrible, right? Folks you don't like are tossers. I love that phrase, a tosser. I'm sure it's probably not clean. But you look at your car and we've got, you know, in the front, we got uh, whatever we got, but they've got a bonnet in the front of their cars. and They've got a boot in the back. And they've got adults saying mummy. Like even the Prince of Wales calls the queen mummy. <laughs> They're so weird. They're so weird. But the one that really tickles our fancy is this one, any joy yet? Right? That, that comes up in all British, right? Any joy yet? And really what this means is whoever's on a search, whoever's looking for something, have they found what they were looking for, right? Has their search ended successfully? This morning I'm going to ask you all the same question, right? Has the joy of the season triumphed over this crazy season of COVID and social unrest? And if not, I got a gift here for you this morning. I mean, if you're a believer, this gift is going to tie in just a little bit with Scripture. Um, but if you're an unbeliever, um, you're sitting at home maybe and somebody you're visiting and they're forcing you to watch this bald guy on TV and you're like, okay, whatever. Um, I got something really special for you here this morning. It's definitely something that you can use and, and then a little bit later when I get into the Scripture, you can nod off, right? So whatever. Um, I want to talk this morning about dopamine. <laughs> like, yeah, this is church, really? Dopamine. If you've ever met somebody unable to enjoy the moment, right, always thinking about and living in some future preferred, better future, uh, they might be a creative type, they might be one of those high achievers, um, a workaholic, um, they're driven to a, a future success, but they're never quite happy with what they have right now, right? Anyone ever met like someone? So if you've met that person, right, part of the explanation is dopamine, right, dopamine, also, if you've ever met an alcoholic or a drug addict or anybody addicted to gambling, shopping, video games, the whole nine yards, driven to the next fix, never quite happy with the current fix, but this feeling of incredible joy and elation at the next, the next fix, dopamine. In a book, uh, The Molecule of More, uh, Daniel Lieberman and uh, Michael Long, they provide this incredibly fascinating, really, I guess it's a biochemical explanation of joy. Right, and a little bit here, I'm going to dig into God's explanation of joy and, and with the crazy thing, and there's going to be an incredible amount of connection, right, because God created us, right? All these neurotransmitters that I'm going to be talking about, like dopamine, that's all part of his great plan, right? And they all have a purpose. So how to enjoy the moment is really the, the point of their book, the here and now, regardless of current circumstances or maybe an uncertain future. And it all revolves around this thing called dopamine that's running around in all of our system, neurotransmitter, right? And what it is, it's concerned with future, the desired future happiness or joy or pleasure, right? Anticipation, newness, and desire create and sustain dopamine, and then you've got these other neurotransmitters. They're, they're different, right? They're, in a, they're a whole different kind of category. Serotonin, oxytocin, passopressin, I mean, all these, kind of, all these endorphins, right? They deal with happiness now, 
right? Dopamine is happiness deferred. And these endorphins are, are really running around in our system and, and they, they're sustained by immediate pleasure, right, right, right now kind of pleasure. But, but here's the deal. Chemically, dopamine doesn't last very long, right? It's just kind of a rush and then it fades off. But here's the crazy thing. It's there long enough for you to ask that girl out. It, it's that drug that, that enables you or it physiologically drives you to get a better job, make some extra money. Right? Do nice things for the family so that they will like you. Um, it, it's, it's the drug, again, that, that neurotransmitter that, that forces us to look into the future and prepare for the future. So it's a really, really, really good thing. But it's also one of the things that ends relationships and jobs almost as quickly as they started because dopamine lives in a constant future. Right? It's the fuel behind relentless achievement. And here's the kicker, perpetual dissatisfaction. Right? It always, always it makes it nearly impossible to truly enjoy the present moment because the present is something that dopamine actively works against as it pins our mind to the future, something that we can enjoy later on, security, love, these things that we need, we need to plan and prepare for, that, that dopamine doing its job, right? So the joy of dopamine is in the dream, right? The chase, it's always around the next corner, which explains why addictions, right, anyone addicted to anything, right, there's so much dopamine released in these addictions that pretty soon your body can't produce dopamine at all. So when you're withdrawing, when you're trying to quit these addictions and you've seen people try to quit addictions, they can't drum up enough future thinking to really do anything, Right? They, they just, they, they can't, they're, they're, they're just, they cannot find any joy in the future except in their next addictive fix because there's no dopamine in their system, right? They're starved, so they, they can't even physically do anything. Have you ever seen somebody withdraw? They're a mess. They are a physical mess. Their body is fighting against them. So how do we balance this human need to plan and prepare for the future but still enjoy the moment, well, the, the writers of this book give us an incredible, just the simplest, simplest key. And what they say is, if you're going to go take a walk with your wife, don't be thinking about the pe message that you're going to be preaching this Sunday. Enjoy the moment there with your wife. You hearing this, Diana? Kudos. <laughs> Right? Enjoy the moment. And what this does is this releases those endorphins, those other ones that naturally suppress the dopamine so that you can enjoy the moment. Right? So that you're not constantly living in some kind of future moment, that you can actually enjoy the moment. Right? Okay, so now you can check out, right, if you got dragged here and you're, you don't want to be here, take a quick cat nap. But, 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 if you stick with us a bit longer, um, you're going to discover that God already knew all this stuff. Right, because he's the one that created our bodies, right? And he works with these neurotransmitters. That's what he does. He, he works with his creation. And if you're hurting today, I want to show you a plan to restore your joy. And again, it, it's tied in with this, this idea of these, these neurotransmitters, um, for over 2,000 years, millions upon millions of people worldwide have given witness to this plan, right? This plan that good news, that will cause great joy for all the people. In fact, many felt it was such good news that 
they witnessed unto death. Right? Witness, the Greek word is martis, and pretty soon witnesses became known as what? Martyrs. Because they just couldn't stop telling the good news. Regardless of what would happen to them, the news was so good for all mankind. Everybody that they loved that was watching them, they witnessed unto death. And there's a reason. I don't know if you read this report. There's a study that just came out. America's mental health is at a 20-year low, right? Big surprise. There's one demographic that bucks the trend. One demographic. Weekly churchgoers. It was amazing. Weekly churchgoers buck the trend, right? They are somehow experiencing joy and happiness where the rest of the world just kind of down in the dumps and in darkness. Craziest thing, right? Um, so how do we churchgoers do it? Well, we, we know God's plan, right? And when thinking about that plan... We talked about this a little bit earlier, or, or um, Dan talked about this a little earlier. Paul, the writer of many of the letters of the New Testament, had this to say. When he thinks about this incredible plan, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Right? In every circumstance, in every situation, in every moment in history, whether secular or sacred, whether now on earth or later when Jesus returns, whether in a simple, quiet, profound moment of joy when you recognize the fact that your sins have been forgiven and, and you're going to spend eternity with Christ to like rolling on the floor laughing when you think about spending eternity with Jesus, right? The whole range, range in every circumstance, in every situation. Why? Because God is good all the time. In circumstances, situations, and moments in time, he's always working for our good. By the way, did I tell you that Paul, when he wrote this, he's sitting in prison waiting to be executed. He knows this is going to happen. Nero has his number. And yet he can still say, rejoice. Rejoice always. Rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. And how, how can this be? Right? Well, what has Paul got? Right? Well, Paul understands what we're going to look at today. Right? The faithful, consistent source of joy and happiness that was ushered into the world 2,000 years ago, one afternoon, in the region of Galilee, in a little city of Nazareth. Let me read. This is in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. This is referring to Jesus. He went up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll, scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me. You recognize what I'm reading here, right? Just a little bit earlier, we read Isaiah, right? Six, seven hundred years before this, we hear Isaiah. So Jesus is speaking the words of Isaiah. Whatever Isaiah prophesied back then, Jesus, right, He's like, he's, he's, he's it, right? Listen to this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim, now this is important, the year of the Lord's favor. The Israelites knew this. The year of the Lord's favor is the year of Jubilee, right? Dan was speaking about that just a little bit earlier. And again, this all sounds so nice and wonderful, truly amazing, right? God had commissioned Jesus to bring good news to people in desperate need of good news. And what was the news? Right? The prisoners would be released from prisons, probably wrongly imprisoned by unrighteous judges, 
absolutely key there. People who, would be, who, were, who were wronged would be righted. Um, people would be healed physically, emotionally, spiritually. Again, what was wrongly taken or what was lost would be returned. The year of the Lord's favor. What an amazing thing, right? But to Jesus' audience that day, rather shocking. Because what he was saying, he was literally saying, I am the one who is going to usher in the prophet Isaiah's prophecy. I'm going to usher in the year of Jubilee that you Israelites failed at for the past how many thousand years. Never once were you able to pull it off. I'm here and I'm going to do it. The silly carpenter's son would usher in the year of Jubilee. I mean, you can imagine the audience, right? A carpenter's son. He's going to usher in the year of Jubilee. I mean, this was a huge thing for the Jewish people, right? This was right up there with the Messiah. and In fact, it's linked with the Messiah. This is all their hopes and dreams are pinned to this prophecy and this Messiah. But here's the sad part. Again, Dan mentioned this earlier. It was supposed to happen every 50 years. The year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, starting with Moses and Joshua when they led them into the promised land, 1,400 years earlier. There should have been, according to my math, somebody help me out here, at least 28 years of Jubilee. At least 28. You're all going to have to do the math when you get home. Between then and Jesus' time. So what happened? Well, before Joseph and Moses, Joshua and Moses, right, led the Israelites into the promised land, God gave them Torah, right? He gave them the law, and this law, Torah, covered every aspect of their life, right? And if they could live out Torah, then the world would witness the goodness of God, and they would want to be a part of what God was doing. It would be their witness of them connecting, right, God with people, All aspects of life were covered in the Torah, including, probably most specifically, economic laws. And of which there were four main ones. I just want to quickly go through these. Four main economic laws. And again, what was mentioned earlier, they really did well on the first three, but they never did the fourth one. The first one is tithing, right? 10% of whatever you make or whatever you earn goes to the storehouse, right? To care for the priests and the church workers, you know, and, and the poor in the community, right? And then there's Sabbath. Every seven days, right, the people rest, and then there's the sabbatical. Every seven years, everybody rests, including the animals in the land, not just the people. Right? Every seven years, everybody gets to rest. And then gleaning, right? When you, when you harvest your field, right, don't get too close to the edge and, and cut, a, cut, a, cut a corner, leaving a lot at the corners, leaving a lot at the edges. This was a law. This wasn't laziness. This wasn't me mowing my lawn, Right? This was a law, and it allowed the foreigners and the sojourners and the aliens among you and the poor, it would give them something to eat and something to sustain them. God was so good, not only to the Jewish people, but to everyone surrounding the Jewish people. And then Jubilee, right? After seven cycles of sabbatical, right? Seven cycles of seven, 49 years. That 50th year, year of Jubilee, everybody stops. And here's the crazy thing, right? In this 50th year, the entire economic system is reset, right? Debts were forgiven. Again, many of them, not all of them, many of them from foolishness and sin, and yet the promise of Jubilee even covers that, 
right, the shame of some of our decisions that we've made, Jubilee lets us reset, right? Start all over. Everybody gets a do-over. It's amazing, a do-over. Debts were forgiven, land returned, prisoners to set free. Grace would flow and everybody gets a do-over, right? Now, the first three were faithfully implemented, we know this, but never Jubilee. Now, fast forward 700 years from Mount Sinai in the giving of the commandments. The nation had split in two. And about 40 years before the prophet Isaiah writes, we're going to look at what Isaiah wrote. The northern half of the nation that had split in two now, the northern half, it was called Israel. They'd already been carted off to Assyria, the ten lost tribes, never to be seen again. Right? And then the southern half, it was called Judah at this time, was quickly falling totally falling apart, stuck between battling empires, all over the Egyptian empire, the Assyrian, the Babylonians, they were, and there was poor Judah kind of stuck in the middle, right? Kind of making silly alliances against what God had commanded them. The people were depressed. They felt hopeless, total despair. And what made it worse is they, they were fairly certain that they were the fault, right? It's not like God was like, just said, I don't like you anymore, right? They knew, like what we talked about in the first week of Advent, their hope was born in, in, in lament and suffering. They knew that they were the cause of all this. So now Isaiah, right, in a vision, he sees the future destruction of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. But he also sees something different. He also sees something amazing, right, something the people couldn't see. They simply couldn't get out of their situation, their immediate circumstances. Everything was right in front of them. They could not see, right? They lost perspective, Something extraordinary, something promised long ago but never realized, the year of Jubilee. What the people looked upon as despair, God wants to use for a new beginning, right? Even though Israel and Judah had failed to proclaim the great renewal of Jubilee, God was going to proclaim it anyways, right? If you aren't going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to send my son, and he's going to pull it off. Through the eyes of God and Isaiah, the rubble of Jerusalem, the rubble that Isaiah saw that they were seeing all around them, that wasn't a cause for despair. It was a cause of great rejoicing because God was going to like, he's going to use this occasion to give them a clean slate, right? A really rough way to do it. But he's like, well, you know, here's what you gave me and I'm going to use what you gave me. He says, okay. And again, the people are depressed and and God's going, no, 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 no. Y'all get to start over now. Don't you see it? All your past mistakes that you see in the buildings and you see in these cities, all your past silliness and it all wiped clean, level playing field. Everybody starts anew. And finally, you can become the people that I created you to be. I'm going to give you a new, completely new uh, do-over. Now, while Jesus quotes only verses 1 in the beginning of 2, when he stood up that day in Nazareth, the rest of the people could easily finish it, right? They knew their Bibles, right? Jesus had a habit of saying he'd start the psalm and, and everybody else knew, like on the cross, he started Psalm 22, right? And everybody could finish it in their minds. They knew what he was saying. And in this passage too, they, they knew what was coming. They were new. He was going to be talking about the year of Jubilee. But for those of us who haven't memorized Isaiah 61, I'm going to read it for you. I'm going to, we're going to walk through it just a little bit here this morning. I'm going to start at the end of chapter, verse 2, chapter 61, where Jesus left off. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That, that's kind of a scary phrase, but understand what the writer is saying here. The vengeance isn't like he's going to come and destroy everybody. The vengeance is 
the people who unrighteously stole your land, he's going to take it back from them. That's the vengeance. I mean, it's not like he's going to destroy them. It's like, hey, hey, give it back. (laughs) You know you stole it. Give it back. And to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. Isaiah is telling the people that God didn't forget the year of Jubilee. He didn't forget. That was still a gift waiting for them. They didn't take hold of it, and he's going to give it to them now. Isaiah says that God would comfort all who mourned and provide for those who grieve by way of a redeemer. And these promises extend right down to you and I. So God promised to comfort all who mourned and provide for those who grieve by proclaiming three year of Jubilee proclamations. That's about the best way I can say it. Um, Three instead ofs. Right? He, he pronounces on them, and this is going to take away their mourning and it's going to give them everlasting joy. These three instead ofs. Instead ofs. Instead of what they were currently seeing and experiencing, and instead of what we might be currently seeing and experiencing. He says this the first thing, the first instead is I'm going to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Right? The hopelessness of the lost city and the trampled gardens and all the burned homes. God was going to transform all of that into joy. Right? The ashes of this place was going to be fertile soil for something brand new, new life springing up from a, a wrecked old life. This theme is picked up again and expanded in verse 7. It says this, instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. Right? Ashes for obvious reasons, right? Destruction, right? Always represented grief and sorrow to the Jewish people, right? You either sat in a pile of ashes or you, or you piled them on your head or you somehow did something with ashes, right? To represent mourning and sorrow. Um, even the sadness and shame brought on by your own folly and your own sin, right? So you'd sit there in your pile of ashes and, right, people understood that you were sad, And then verse 10 says that God wants to replace the ashes on those heads with a headdress of joy like that worn by a happy bridegroom, right? Isn't that amazing? We're going to come to that in a little bit. Um, In fact, your glory will be twice your shame. You felt like you were down and sin was getting you. I'm going to bring you back twice what you have felt in the past. I I mean, my, my joy is going to be unspeakable, unspeakable. But there are a couple caveats very quickly. A crown of beauty instead of ashes doesn't negate the hardship or the grief that we feel, right? We're not standing up here and saying, look, just just love Jesus, and you really don't feel pain and sorrow. Those are all fake feelings or wrong or no, that's, that's, that's not what he's saying at all. We are okay to grieve. We just don't grieve like other men grieve because we have a hope. So grief is absolute. In fact, it's, it's necessary. It helps us process, bodily process, Right? And it doesn't mean that God caused the hardship, but he wants to redeem it, right? Romans 8, 28, he wants to work something good out of everything, right? For those of us who love him and are called according to his purposes. See, God is good in spite of our circumstances, right? This text talks about God's faithfulness, even in the midst and even in, the, in spite of the people's unfaithfulness, right? God never stops being good, 
I know a lot of people feel like, oh, I did something wrong and therefore I'm, I'm experiencing this. That's because God doesn't love me and he's not good to me anymore until I be better. That's silly. That's not scripture. Okay, don't believe that. God loves you all the time and he's always working for your good. Never stops. Never stops. In addition to a crown of beauty instead of ashes, we're promised the oil of joy instead of mourning. So after the period of mourning with all the ash and everything, the idea is that they would anoint themselves with oil, and it was, a, it was represented as kind of a cleaning kind of thing, right? We're done mourning, we're done with the ashes, and now we're, we're going to get cleaned up, take a shower, shave, kind of get the feel of what's going on here. There's a period of mourning, but then after the period of mourning, there's, there's the sun rising the next morning, and that's to be celebrated. The night's over. Day has returned. We see this when a family freed from cycles of abuse, right? We see joy. When hungry people are fed, we see joy. And when sad people realize, recognize that they're not alone in their grief, that, that, that the people of God come and stand beside them, their grief, grief is lessened and it's replaced with joy. And that's the craziest thing. We join them in their grief and their grief lessens and joy returns. And finally, once we're all cleaned up and a crown on our heads, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Right? The sins and mistakes of their past could be left behind in the rubble and they could get a fresh start. Right? It's now a level playing field. They could finally be the people that God called them to be. And then finally, the result. Here's the rest of verse 3. They will be called oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord to the display of his splendor. Oaks of righteousness. That's a picture of people who love justice and mercy. Right? They love righteousness. Oaks are solid, right? You don't mess with an oak. Right? The God's people were solid. I mean, they're just thick with love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. Oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor, right? We're literally, Isaiah is saying, we're, we're a garden that the whole world walks by and go, wow, beautiful. Wow. And they want to be in that garden. They want to join that garden because it's such a beautiful, beautiful garden. And just like last week, right, we had a continuum, right? Jesus is peace personified. And then he says, my peace I give to you. And then with his peace, we become witnesses, right? It's just that, that, that passing of the baton. Same thing going on here this morning, exact same thing, right? He alone proclaims and institutes all three insteads, but only, excuse me, but not only to replace their sorrow and their joy, but also so that the children of God could participate in the joyful renewal that God was instituting everywhere, Right? God is redeeming people. He redeems us. We become part of the redemption of the rest of creation because we've been redeemed. Right? This is the continuum. He passes on to us. He passes on that baton of holiness. And we become beautiful. Oaks of righteousness. Listen to this in verse 4. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Right? Even though it's ultimately God who brings about the healing, the hope, and the joy, it's really, really clear. I don't know if you guys are catching this, but God is inviting the rest of us to join in the effort. 
Right? The people of God are actively joining God's restoration work, and the people of God are called to do the work of God. And the kicker is it brings us happiness and joy in the process. Right? By self-emptying, our joy is made complete, just like Christ did. By giving to others, somehow, I don't know, ironic, I know, somehow we get filled back up as we empty ourselves for other people. God, that's God's math. I don't understand. It's just the way it works. And it's not just the people of God raised up and the people of God joining in the redemption party, right? They will rebuild and they will renew. This thing is going global, right? It's going global. Check this out. The rest of verse 4 and then verse 5 says, Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and your vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God, right? People will recognize that all goodness and mercy and righteousness flows from those folks in Jerusalem, What do those folks in Jerusalem have that we don't have? You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast, right? So strangers and foreigners, members of the Gentile nations, right, they're going to be converted to the true God, and they're going to be so joyous that they're going to jump in, and they're going to start doing the work of God's people, right? They're, They're just going to join up beside us, right? And in the process, they're going to find joy and happiness. And when they've prospered, just as the people of God prosper, then all of God's people will boast about how good God is, and in their riches you will boast. Literally, God is saying, you Israelites, you are going to be so proud of your God because your God is so good that he even loves strangers and aliens and other people. Wow, God is good. And you're going to boast about his goodness. So, he doesn't ask us to wait for joy. Wait quietly until he returns. Stay out of trouble. Don't do any harm. It's not what he's asking us to do at all. He wants to make our joy complete even now as we join in in his mission to redeem all of creation. I want you to listen to the rest of chapter 61. And I just want you to catch, I'm going to make a few comments. I want you to catch the flow and the, 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 the emotion involved, right? Just kind of feel this for a moment. I'm going to start in verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with him. Remember back in verse 7, a double portion, right? The reward will be twice the disgrace. It would mean an everlasting covenant of everlasting joy. Again, ironic, right? By becoming oaks of righteousness, people who love justice and mercy... Other people are finding Christ. Our joy is being made complete. Let me keep reading. Verse 9. The descendants, their descendants will be known among the nations and the offspring among the peoples. All who see them, all who witness them, remember? The Israelites, the Jewish people were to be a witness for the glory of God. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people that the Lord has made very happy. That's what blessed means. Made ridiculously happy. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Right? If it isn't clear yet, let me help you out here. God wants to make you happy. Right? He wants us to be overflowing with happiness and joy. Right? But he knows that happiness and joy derived from loving God and neighbor is sustaining. It's a sustainable joy, right? It's not, it's not dopamine. It's not a boom and then we're out of here. Not at all. 
I'm not talking about happy once I return, right? Not at all. Joy and happiness is Jesus' gift to all of humanity now, right? So happy that the surrounding nations want in on it. We're talking about a happiness and a joy like a wedding celebration, right? Verse 10, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The priest had this elaborate headdress as did the grooms of the Jewish, Jewish people at this day and age. Right, so this, 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 the joy is being compared to a wedding celebration, right? The greatest joy that a young couple can experience in their lifetime. This is what God wants for us. Verse 11, for as the soil makes the sprout grow up and a garden causes seeds to grow, also the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Our joy and happiness in the Lord is the bait that draws other people to himself. I know some people are going to have a little bit of trouble with that. Scripture's fairly clear. Joy is what brought me to the Lord. It wasn't a whole bunch of sad, angry Christians. I wouldn't have wanted to be a part of them. It was a whole bunch of people who were telling me that I could have joy and I could have peace and I could have what they had. So it drew me in. The joy and happiness that folks see in the people of God is the very thing that will bring his holiness and grace and mercy and happiness and joy to them too. A little side note here. You'll notice that throughout this message, I've used the terms joy and happiness interchangeably, right? And that's for a reason, right? Just as we have a half a dozen English words for that feeling of joy and happiness in the English language, the Greeks and the Romans, they, or excuse me, the Greeks and the Hebrews hit that next slide there. They had a whole bunch of words. I've just put three of each language. There's a dozen of them. And they all have their nuances, but they all really describe that feeling of joy and happiness. So here's the fascinating part. Here's the, I just, just love this part, right? And it gives, goes against common wisdom, the source of joy and happiness are about as diverse as we are, right? It's not just heavenly stuff, right? There's no heavenly or holy joy as compared to earthly happiness. I think that's just silly. These are not words. In fact, I don't think you'll find any words in God's scripture that divide up secular happiness and sacred happiness, right? Why don't you watch this? Biblical sources of joy and happiness. God pronounced all of creation very good. That means everything that we're seeing is good. There's not good stuff and uh, not so good stuff, right? The Old Testament talks about the joy of a wedding or the joy of childbirth. I know we're not going to like this, but the, the Old Testament and the Proverbs talk about a bottle of wine, the joy of a bottle of wine, the joy of perfume, the joy of good friends, such mundane stuff. And yet God's the author of all of it. He's the author of all of it. Everything good, God is the author of. And again, as we've learned today, there's no difference between, right, the joy of his presence, the Holy Spirit now, except maybe by degree. And when he finally returns, he promises not a different joy, but a more complete joy, like a huger amount of joy, right? Full, complete, not needing any more. Again, this is why it's so significant that Jesus was announced as good news that brings great joy. And why Paul, sitting in prison, waiting for the execution order to come down from Nero, right, can still say with all integrity and honesty, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, I say. Again, rejoice. When we try to create division, like biblical or earthly, it's really a soft form of Gnosticism, right? Gnosticism said that everything fleshy is bad and only spiritual is good. God's Word says differently, all of creation was good. 
Even the simple mundane aspects of life, they're all good. They're all amazing. As we've seen and as we've read, God calls all of creation very good. And he delivers joy and happiness, again, nonstop. See, we're not just spirit. That's what people who buy into this, I, I don't know, it leans toward that. We're not just spirit. We're mind, body, soul, and spirit. And we're called to love with all four, not just our spirit, but also our physicalness. We can love good friends. Here's the deal, folks. We're living in the tension of the in-between times. And God calls us and he's equipped us to thrive in these in-between times, right? Between his birth and him coming back. He calls us to be joy-filled witnesses. And he invites us not only to savor with joyful anticipation the full and complete consummation of the kingdom, right? The not yet part, right? But he also calls us to savor the already part, part that when Jesus returned to be at the Father, he left us the gift of the Holy Spirit, that part. See, when we overly live in the future, when we have both feet in eternity, we don't notice the pain and the joy of people here now, people here right, right in front of us. And at that point, we're operating kind of on dopamine. Right? We're living in the future. And we're kind of bummed about right now. God says, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Take great joy in the things that I have given you. Even in the midst of this mess, I never stop giving you good things. You're all walking and you're all breathing right now. Praise God. You're here in this building right now. You're watching on TV. Praise God. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on and on, right? Count your blessings. Let those endorphins flow, right? That's God's plan. Love the moment because he gave us the moment. He blessed the moment, and he called it good. I want to close with a word of prayer. I'm going to read it. If you all bow your heads. Where the world despairs in darkness, God's people rejoice in the possibility for light to break in. Where the world lives mired in sin, God's people rejoice in the potential of transforming and sanctifying grace. Where the world feels trapped by evil, God's people anticipate the world-turning power of good. And where the people, the world anguishes over death, God's people rejoice in the coming of Christ's resurrection life. Father, we do rejoice where the world sees it one way, we see it a different way. And Father, we're, we're, we're called to help other people see it the way we see it, to find the good, to find what you're doing in the midst of what we can't see can be possibly good. And yet you call us to be happy and joy-filled because that's what attracts people. Father, that's what attracted me to you. You loved me when I was unlovable. And that's what the world wants. They want to be loved. But they know they're not lovable. They're kind of messed up. That's 
why your son came. That's why you sent your son, Father. So that we would have life. So we would have light to chase away the darkness. Father, this morning, give us joy. Give us joy unspeakable. And Father, if we're having trouble finding it, maybe if we go out into our community and we come alongside somebody who is, has no joy. Your word seems to say that our joy will return when we do these loving things. So, Father, you've shown us the way. Give us courage now to stay on the way, to not veer left or right, um, so that our joy would be made complete. Thank you, Father. It's all because of your Son. In his name I pray.